0: I'm Bill Lawrence, and this is My Big Bag of Onions.
1: The got from Maine to
2: California Broken hearts they far so this night we'll share a lover On that dog radio I've got so many beats So Hands pressed Cold against the phone
3: There's
2: a man at ten who couldn't make a three He's got blood on his hands and blood on his sheets He knows what's good for you and me Hands are washed but never clean Good times Never been so bad Good times
4: Every day, around 100 people are killed on America's roads, including 16 pedestrians. Each death is a tragedy, but that of Elaine Hertzberg, who died after being hit by a car in Tempe, Arizona, on the evening of March 18th, was a tragedy of a new kind. It was the first known case of a pedestrian being killed by a self-driving car. The accident has raised questions about whether America's rules surrounding the testing of autonomous vehicles, or AVs, are too lax. The vehicle that struck Ms Hertzberg was being tested in autonomous mode by Uber, a ride-hailing firm. Local police said it was travelling at 38 miles an hour, that's 61 kilometres an hour, on a road with a speed limit of 45 miles an hour, and that video from the vehicle shows Ms. Hertzberg, who was wheeling a bicycle by the side of the road, stepping suddenly into the car's path. A human safety driver in the vehicle did not anticipate the collision and had not taken manual control. The police and federal safety bodies have launched investigations, during which Uber has suspended operation of its AVs in Arizona, Pittsburgh and San Francisco.
5: The frustrations of air travel are many and varied. Enduring the scrum to board, rummaging for room in the overhead lockers, waiting patiently for the last two remaining passengers to be extracted from the shops. After all that, those on the aircraft often find that it has failed to push back from the gate in time to meet its takeoff slot. Because under their own power, planes can only go forward, they rely on a tug when reversing from a gate. If such is not available, has lost its driver or has broken down at the gate, the plane must stay. This may soon change though. Wheel Tug, a company in Gibraltar, has spent over a decade developing electric motors to drive an aircraft's nose wheel. This month it employed Sterling Dynamics, an engineering firm in Bristol, England, to help prepare the device for certification by air safety authorities. It has tested a prototype and hopes its motorised wheels will be available in 2019 for fitting onto versions of the Boeing 737 and later onto other aircraft. The company says 22 airlines are already keen. In theory, planes could leave gates using the reverse thrust baffles deployed to slow them during landing. This, though, would mean revving the engines up so much that it would be safe neither for ground staff nor for other aircraft in the vicinity so some sort of system would still be needed to manoeuvre aircraft when they were near the terminal.
2: You're listening to Bill's Big Bag of Onions.
6: The question, which beer do you want, Mary, went down at the end. When she puts her nose to a glass, though, something switches on. She sits straighter, and her words come out faster, lit by interest and focus. It smells like a campfire to me, also. Smoky, like wood. Charred wood, like a cedar chest. Like a cigar, tobacco, dark things. Smoking jackets. She sips from the glass. Now I'm getting the chocolate in the mouth. Caramel, cocoa nibs. I sniff the ale. I sip it, push it around my mouth, draw blanks. I can tell it's intense and complex, but I don't recognize any of the components of what I'm experiencing. Why can't I do this? Why is it so hard to find words for flavors and smells? For one thing, smell, unlike our other senses, isn't consciously processed. The input goes straight to the emotion and memory centers. Langstaff's first impression of a scent or flavor may be a flash of color, an image, a sense of warm or cool, rather than a word. Smoking jackets in a glass of Noel, Christmas trees in a hoppy, resinous India pale ale. It's this, too. Humans are better equipped for sight than for smell. We process visual input 10 times faster than olfactory. Visual and cognitive cues handily trump olfactory ones.
7: another stone. Fill out the night until the sunrise. The city tells me not to go till dawn. And if he wakes, that's when my heart breaks and I'm as good as gone. How do I lie? To face another dawn And in the light When the moon shines
5: listening to Bill's Big Bag of Onions.
8: A garden variety ranch house on a street full of garden variety ranch houses. His Tidy rooms a refuge from dirty dishes, unmade beds, soiled laundry. Seated at his desk, door closed, he studies photosynthesis, marvels at light's transformation into sustenance. Muffled voices rise above a sitcom's canned laughter. Footsteps echo down the hall. You don't get me, she says, walking past his bedroom. I'll return to counselling, his father says. Laughter doors slam an engine roars tires squeal he imagines her plymouth speeding into darkness tastes metal returns to his books to the ingenuity of plants to the magic of light
4: these are the golden onions
9: Children's language develops with everyday social talk. Most of it's directed at getting things done. But there's another kind that emerges when the day's activities are over. You hear it clearly in some children between the ages of two and three, especially if they sleep alone. They're lying in bed, not expecting attention, talking to themselves. If you listen carefully, you'll hear that they're distinguishing sounds and practising them. Then they whisper, shout, squeak and sing, and produce a whole range of the noises that make up words, like a violinist trying out a new instrument. This seems to be play, if so, it's play for real. The most important play for real is play with language. It begins very early, sometimes unnoticed as anything more than babbling, calling out, or the repetition of certain noises. In children's prolonging of sound-making, we soon see the human instinct for games, especially when they talk to themselves just before they settle to sleep. Then they turn words into playthings. Barbie, Barbie. Nice girl, nice girl, nice boy. Barbie, want a drink? Want a teddy, want a lolly.
0: The grand business of our lives, the novelist Henry Fielding said, the foundation of everything, either useful or pleasant, is conversation. Of course, Fielding was an 18th century English gentleman, so his enthusiasm is not surprising. The 18th century was the heyday of conversation in England, and some would say in France as well. It flourished in the clubs, in the dining rooms of the world to do, and above all, in the coffee houses. There were perhaps 2,000 coffee houses in London in the mid-18th century. It's quite a claim though, isn't it? The foundation of everything, either useful or pleasant. And Samuel Johnson, Fielding's contemporary, was hardly less emphatic. There is in this world, he said, no real delight, excepting those of sensuality, but the exchange of ideas in conversation. I doubt that many of us would say that nowadays. Is it an art we've, for some reason, lost? Is it perhaps something you had to have leisure and servants to be able to cultivate and enjoy? It's tempting when we read about the pleasures of lively conversation in earlier times, at Will's Coffee House, say, where you might have heard Dryden holding forth, or Garraway's, a favorite of Pepys's, or the Rainbow. David Hume was a regular there. Well, it's easy to think to ourselves it's never like that at Starbucks, or even at that smart new place we went to last Sunday with the overpriced Bolivian Matatouille and rude waiters. Never.
2: Thank you.
10: It seems like for the last 10 years, everyone has been talking about the way in which the internet might be changing childhood, changing children's educational prospects, changing the way they relate to each other and possibly bringing all kinds of risks. So it just seemed like a really lively topic that people wanted to understand better.
11: And how did you approach it?
10: One way of coming at this particular topic is to listen to the kinds of popular discourses, the sometimes moral panics, the media headlines kind of screaming about all the things that might be bad about the internet and start to ask well what would a careful social science analysis show if we were to go and interview children, interview parents.
0: I suppose we should start by saying what counts as a child in this
12: context?
10: That's a really great question. It's not obvious, actually, what either child or internet means, and both, we could say, are changing. It's important to me to think about the history of childhood and to think about the way in which our conceptions of a child have changed. And for many people, it means quite a small person, under about, let's say, ten. But from the point of view of many of the policies that are there to both provide for and protect children, many would point to the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child as the kind of really key framework. And that defines a child as anyone under 18 recognising that they have different needs and somewhat qualified rights depending on their capacity. So there's always a kind of careful question about age, about context, and about what kinds of needs and abilities they have at different ages.
13: The star turn on November the 19th, 1863 wasn't Abraham Lincoln at all. The star turn was the most famous public speaker in America, Edward Everett. He'd been a governor, a senator, an ambassador. A crowd of 15,000 wasn't going to faze him. Everett spoke to them for two hours, saying things like, You can now feel it. A new bond of union that they shall lie side by side on the perilous ridges of the battle. You can now feel it. A new bond of union that they lie side by side till a clarion, louder than that which marshaled them to combat, shall wake them from their slumbers. Everett knew the power of repetition, but his is a funeral speech of the more ordinary kind. The kind that ennobles the speaker, not the subject. The kind that wraps up calamity in comforting familiar terms, so that calamity is dispersed into the rhetorical fog. You know what's coming next. It's the sort of speech you hear, and feel you could almost join in. Edward Everett knew the gig. I doubt that he was distracted by the fact that, behind the crowd, people were picking over the battlefield for souvenir bullets. By the time Lincoln got started, most of the crowd had drifted off. You couldn't blame them. (laughs)
8: Anda sedang mendengarkan sebuah tas besar penuh dengan onions yang punya bill
14: time when the blind man takes your hand says don't you see gotta make it some on the tree still believe don't give it up you gotta no!
15: trace the evolution of humans by the materials they use to make tools and weapons. This is called the Three Ages System. The Stone Age began about a million years ago and ended around 3000 BC, but many parts of the world technically were still in the Stone Age in the 15th century. The Bronze Age, like the Stone Age, doesn't refer to a specific period of time, but to a phase of development when humans began to fashion bronze tools. In Mesopotamia, the Bronze Age began around 3000 B.C. Europeans didn't catch on until 1800 B.C. Some areas, most notably Africa south of the Sahara, skipped the Bronze Age altogether and went directly to iron. Around 1100 B.C., the people of Asia Minor began working with iron, officially heralding the start of the Iron Age. The end of the Iron Age is even more unclear than the other two. In much of Europe, for instance, the Iron Age is taken to end with the expansion of the Romans, while in parts of Africa, the Iron Age continues until the colonial era. Technically speaking, the Iron Age should last at least until the Industrial Revolution.
16: I just don't know why You got a woman waiting for you, dear. All you ever gotta do is be a good man one time to one woman, and that'll be the end of the it. I know you got more tears to shed, man. So come on, come
1: on, come on, come on.
11: Death may be the only real certainty in life, but the manner of it has changed remarkably over just a few generations, and the moral dilemmas it poses haunt us as never before. Where once we died young and suddenly of infection, violence or overwork, we now mostly live on to a lingering death with the degenerative diseases of old age. The question of whether the law should allow us to choose to die before nature has run its course becomes ever more pressing. A third of the babies born today can expect to live to a 100. It's in the news again this week. The new chairwoman of the pressure group Dignity and Dying has claimed that thousands of doctors have been risking jail by illegally helping their terminally ill patients to die. Her figures and how she came to them are disputed. The BMA will be debating the issue again at their annual meeting next week. It's been firmly opposed to its members helping people to die and surveys suggest most doctors still don't like the idea. The general public's attitude is the exact opposite. Around four out of five, when polled, say they think it should be allowed. Elsewhere, it's already legal, with varying sets of conditions. In five American states, California became the latest this week, and several European countries. The arguments on both sides are powerful, emotive, and often evidenced by heart-rending individual cases the traditional idea of the sanctity of life set against the perceived compassion and mercy of ending suffering. The case for personal autonomy runs up against fears that the vulnerable, old, confused, disabled, might be pressured into death for personal gain or institutional efficiency.
4: Again soon for another journey through the pleasures of music, words and sound. I'll be seeing you. Bill's Big Bag of Onions has been
8: produced and directed by Adrian Cohen and is a guppy production for Cole Radio.